Yo, this is Pastor Tito, and welcome to another episode of the Revolutionary Podcast. Welcome back as we're continuing to study the book of Acts for 2022. And today we're going to look at something that started in the history of the church early on and has been a part of our history even until today. And it's the big debate on what does it look like to be a Christian? Now, this is a good question to ask, but we have to be cautious that we don't lose sight of Christ himself. So let's look at how the early church handled this so that we can learn how to do it too. We're letting the text guide our focus. Uh, today we are going to get into and we're going to observe probably what is considered to be, if not, I want to say it's the, be safe to say, the first debate inside of the church. The first debate within Christians on a specific and particular topic. Now, I don't know about here, but I know everyone's going to be a little different, answer this question a little bit differently, but we all love debates, don't we? We all love a good debate. Let me just say it that way. And so some of you, if you don't like to engage in it, you do like to watch when people start going at it, right? That's just something about it, right? And so I know we got political debates that some people love and some people hate, but then there's always something, right? Especially when it's something that you love, woo, and then you get to step in, you can defend that, and you want to, I mean, we all love that feeling. Let's just be real. We all love the feeling of debating somebody and coming out to be right, right? Parents, we all love that one, right? When we get that moment when the kid goes, mom, dad, you were right. We live for those, right? We live for those moments, right? And so, because yes, and so we just love the vindication. But uh, some of us love confrontation, some of us not. And, and let's be real, I, I wish we all could learn how to debate better because debating is healthy, right? It's, it's healthy to, to talk, but, but not like this. So let me show you a video of an epic debate ver on a silly topic, the Wizard of Oz. And so can we just put that debate real quick? I love this one. So when you have debates in your house, which one go like that? Uh, anybody? I know we know some people, right? And it's about the silliest things, right? And they, oh. And so, like, I, I was having a conversation with my kids. And so, you know, they're all getting to this age. And so they're, they're all a little older. So they love talking and they love debating. And they love to debate first thing in the morning. I'm like, no, why? First thing in the morning they're debating. They literally were arguing over breakfast in a polite way, not like this, okay? But sometimes it gets like that, let's be real. But they were arguing in a polite way the difference between being, being uh, kind and being polite. What's the difference? They were arguing the difference of, and then who's better at both? Oh my gosh. And so this was the conversation at breakfast. I'm like, can we just not okay why it's just not even the morning the coffee hasn't kicked in yet but anyways i bring up that issue with this topic of this debate because we're going to look at a debate here and we're going to look at a very controversial debate that is still raging after 2000 years still today and the the question of that debate is this what should the christian life look like 
What should it look like? If you like watching a debate or engaging in one, ask that question, grab some popcorn, sit back and watch the fireworks. Because man, that one is a big one. What does the Christian life look like? What is it supposed to look like? What are we supposed to dress like, act like, think like, watch, eat, do all of that? What is it supposed to look like? And so we're going to look at that debate right here to know not just what does it look like, but we're also going to do the opposite. This is called this negative association. We're going to look at what should it look like and what it shouldn't look like so that we can better understand how God can, you know, use us and how are we supposed to follow him in our context. So I have uh, the verse for everybody if you don't have it, but if you can read with me on turn to Acts chapter 11. Short three little verses. We're going to skip around a little bit. So if you really want to hang with me, you can uh, go to Acts chapter 11 and then put a little thumbtack or somewhere uh, later a marker in Galatians, which is just a little bit more. Just kind of keep flipping to your right. Uh, We're going to kind of hop around a lot today to be able to look at that. But as long as you're there, we're good. So here's the text. So if we can put the first one up, Acts 11, verses 1 and 3. Before Actually, Josue, before you put it up, quick context, quick recap, okay? So last week we talked about this. So a monumental thing happened in human history. You saw it in the previously, where God sends Peter to one house where a Roman centurion gets saved. And the big deal about that was because this was the first this, ha- this whole family, in, fa- in fact, the scripture says that it was Cornelius and his entire household, everybody in the house, got saved. And that was symbolic because it was significant and symbolic because in the same way one house got saved, he represents all Jews, well, non-Jews. And so in the same way that this kind of represents the entirety of anybody who's a non-Jew, you can be saved. That's me. That's most of us here. We can be saved. And that's a significant moment. So, I mean, historical moment. Peter and, and the six uh, Christians, they're freaking out. They could not believe. It was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is insane. Look at what God is doing. Look at this. I mean, there's nobody that's out of bounds. Anyone can come to Christ in this way. You've got to be kidding. This is our God. So you could imagine they're telling everybody and it gets exciting. And then here's where we're going to pick up the story. You know, usually when something's good happening, right, somebody always, got, somebody always loves the drama, right? Somebody always likes to just kind of, you know, dunk on your parade, right? When things are going good. I'm like, bro, just give me a minute. So let's look at that. Let's look at here. All right, now we can put it up. Acts 11, verses 1 through 3. Three little verses. So the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were all throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So anybody now can be saved. So they're excited. They're ridiculous. They're, everybody knows about this. Verse 2, when Peter, he was the one there that God used, he went up to Jerusalem. The circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? And so it's like, whoa, 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 Peter, hold on, wait, wait, you, you know, you're telling me all this, but wait, are you telling me that you went to uns- uh, a house where uncircumcised people were and you ate with them. See, this one is the thing that I, I want you guys to, we're going to pause for that moment there. Now, you can read the rest of chapter 11, which we're not, because Peter just gives a quick recap of everything that happened in chapter 10. And so he's talking and he's explaining and he's helping them to see this thing. But the thing is, is that this is what's significant even about this moment is this is the first documented debate that happened within the church. Up until now, if you've been reading with us and, you know, this whole time, this, this is not the description we see. 
up until this time, we've always seen this unity within the church. There's always been a unity and a unity, unity, but now the church has kind of gone multicultural, and now it gets a little complicated because at the beginning it was easy. It was just Jews who were getting saved, right? And so there wasn't a difference. They had this, uh, God had fulfilled or Christ fulfilled all of the uh, Jewish commands, and it was a cool thing. But then uh, the, the Samaritans are getting saved, which are half Jews, half Gentiles, but still they're kind of Jews. And so they're, they're, there's still some relational, there's still some cultural things that they share. But now Gentiles, Romans, non-Jews get saved, and that's when it gets confusing for them. That's when it gets confusing within the church, and like saying, okay, 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 well, what do we do here? All right, so what does it look like to be a believer? And so the people here, this is called, I mean, what a weird, like, I don't know, it's kind of a weird name, you know? I know we got the Republican Party, you know, Democratic Party, Circumcision Party. I'm like, we couldn't be more creative with that. But the thing is, the reason why they were such a big deal, and that's what they were labeled, was because these were Christians who still could not like change their thinking of the old covenant. So these were Jewish Christians who believed that in order to be saved, you need to be, you need to believe in Jesus and, that's key, you need to believe in Jesus and be a Jew, i.e. circumcision and all that stuff, okay? So, but that was like the, 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 the stickler there, okay? You, you had to go all the way. That was like the final thing. You needed to have surgery to be saved, okay? That was kind of like the situation. And so, that was the debate. That's what they were going after. And so it's like, no, no, no. So all of these non-Jews, all right, that's cool. That's cool. They're getting saved. But hold on. They also need to be like us. They need to conform to us, to our culture, because there's something that God did here. And so this was this first debate still happening till today. I mean, we have whole denominations that are split on what does it look like to be a believer. We have groups and sects and subgroups on this topic. Do we sing like this? Do we sing that? Is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? Same thing. First documented thing. And that's what's so sad too, man. Again, we just saw, we just talked about a very monumental historic moment. What was it? Non-Jews are getting saved. But these guys cared more about what Peter did than what God was doing. And see, that's the thing about when we, really, it's, it's pride is a big issue. Pride blinds us. These guys were considered prideful Christians. Uh, they go by different names. If you read the New Testament, uh, you, you'll see them in different ways. Uh, they are referenced as the circumcision party. They are referenced also as uh, Christian Pharisees. All right, there, there's, a, there's another one that is escaping me, but uh, there's different names that they go by, all right? And, the, and there are a prideful group. They're a prideful group that is bringing their old way of thinking into this new life, and that's why it's not mixing. And so, and this is what pride does. Pride blinds us. Look at that. These guys were so prideful about their religion, their faith, that they were missing out on the very, they couldn't even celebrate the fact that God was saving new Jews. They were so upset about this. And so pride really messes with us, which is going to be the issue of today. Um, this is kind of like what the Christian life should not look like. It's really, an, uh, it shouldn't look like selfish pride. I mean, it's going to come in a lot of different ways. But this is the big deal. And I, like I said, this is not just the, well, this is the first debate. But it wasn't the last one. This debate actually happens again later in Acts, which I'm going to show you the reference. And literally, if you look at Paul and, and a lot of the New Testament letters, every letter that was written that has a guy's name on it. So you got like James and um, all of the ones written to churches and Timothy and all that. It was all related on settling this debate that was still going on. And Galatians is a big one. So I told you we're going to hop around. So Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote 
to the Galatian church. And the whole letter of Galatia, the whole letter to the Galatians is literally on this topic, on perfectionism, on being this legalistic Christian that wants to follow all of the rules, that you put all your focus on the rules instead of Christ. And so I'm going to just read Galatians 1. I think I have it for you guys, uh, verses 6 and 7. He's telling this church that he helped to plant and he helped to set up. He says, I am amazed, Galatia, Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I am amazed that you were so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a what? Different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, for there, for, but for some of you who are troubling you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And what is the gospel of Christ? Juan just said it a minute ago. He read it. The gospel of Christ is that we are saved by faith through grace. That's it. By believing in Jesus and what he's done for us. That's it. And he's saying, this is a different gospel. And so quickly you guys forgot. So this is a good warning for us as well, for Christians, because I don't care how holy you are, how great your walk with God is, we are all susceptible to pride. And so we need to kind of look out for these things because we could look how quickly we can be on the right path and quickly go off. So this is a good thing for us as believers as well to make sure, let's look at the road signs to make sure that when we start seeing these things, we're like, uh-oh, something's not right. So let's look at what the Christian life shouldn't look like. Now this, I, I can give you, um, I mean, dozens of, of verses, but I'm not going to give you the references there, uh, but they're all in the, they're pulled from teachings from Jesus and the New Testament and later, and even these are, you can pull it all the way back to the old. Because I said a word that some of you might not have gotten, but I, I like definitions because it helps you when you read the Bible. You see that again, and it's like, oh, hopefully you have context. Now, you heard me say that these guys were considered Christian Pharisees, right? And I, I said that a minute ago. Now, a Pharisee, if you've ever read the gospel, Pharisees should sound familiar. Pharisees were that group inside of the Jewish sect that were the most confrontational with Jesus. You always saw them wanting to debate him. Always. I'm like, so Jesus, you tell me. And so Jesus, you tell me. They always wanted the debate. They loved to be right. And they wanted to make sure and discredit Jesus. And the thing that, about Pharisees is this, guys, is Pharisees were very prideful people. And the thing is, is that they were known for being the best rule followers. They were, being, they were, they were known for that. There was no one better than them. No one better than them. Paul himself, in this letter to the Galatians, actually kind of throws out some clout there and starts saying, listen, you guys like to talk about being rule followers and this and that, but I'm telling you, there was nobody like me. No one like me. When I was you, bro, there was nobody like me. I rose the ranks faster than anyone else. I mean, nobody can touch me. I mean, this guy was like that. If he was an athlete, he would have been not only rookie of the year, but Super Bowl MVP like, and league MVP. That's who, who he was. That's who Paul was. And he says, and all of that doesn't matter. And Jesus constantly were after these Pharisees, and the Pharisees were so blinded because of their pride. Now, these are Christian Pharisees now. So the, the Bible says, we read it in Acts, that a lot of priests were getting saved. And so these are Pharisees who realized, oh my gosh, we were wrong. We were putting all of our faith in our rule following, but thinking that was going to save us, that was going to bless us. But in reality, it's just Christ. And so they believed in Jesus, but they still had this old way of thinking, this old habit that they could not disciple themselves away from, right? This is where discipline comes in. As a believer, if you want to call it, be a disciple of Jesus Christ, disciple, discipline, right? It requires growing. 
And so here's a list of things that Paul mentions in throughout Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians and Jesus as well. Here's a list of what it doesn't look like to be a believer. Ready? So this is what a prideful, pharisaical, legalistic, circumcision party Christian looks like even today. They act like saviors. These are prideful Christians. They act like saviors. They are the ones, God's holy chosen man and woman for the hour, and God is going to use them and help to be able to help everybody else. So they love to act like a savior, but they never ask for help because, again, remember, they're prideful, right? They're always dishing out the help, but they never ask for it. That's a prideful person. They, they love a, a prideful Christian is always trying to be the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. Watch out. They try to be Jesus, and they try to be the Holy Spirit in trying to do this and do that, but they, you can't tell them anything. You try to confront them on something, no, 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 I got it all together. It's you that has the issue. Jesus talked about this, about it's like somebody trying to take a log out of, you know, you're try, I'm trying to take a little speck out of your eye when I got a, a two-by-four sticking out of mine. And I was like, that's what a blind Christian looks like. Here's another one. This is how you know if you are one or not. And by the way, I'm going to tell you, we all have tendencies. So just, just saying. So if, if you're like, oh, psh, that's not me. Boom, gotcha. There you are. Okay, yeah, you're on the list too. Here's another one. They expect others. They love to be perfect and, and demand it of others. They demand, they look down on others who are not as spiritual as them. They look down on them and demand perfection. Because that's what, they do, that's what they want, right? They are living in perfection, and they demand perfection. And if you fall short, ooh, see, here's the thing. They not only define the standard of perfection, they also define and, you know, give the standard of what does it look like to uh, be punished and how, what do you need to do to make things right. And so they set the standard for everything and everyone, okay? So they expect perfection from others. Here's another one. These guys love titles and positions, and they love public opinions and public achievements. This is what the Pharisees were all about. They love to rise the ranks and know, I'm a leader. Look at the title that I have. Look at this. Look at that. They love the titles. They love to feel better than anyone else. These guys, I swear, they act like there's a limited number of seats in heaven. That's what these guys act like, and they're trying to constantly one-up one another. And, and they just love that. They love what the title gives them. They love that. They, they pursue those things because it, it, it gives them validity and, and who they are. Here's another one, man. You, you know some of this. Are they, listen, these kind of Christians today, like they were back then, they are constant critics. Can't make them happy. Doesn't matter what you got going on. Doesn't matter the, the best thing ever. Because again, a perfectionist, which let's just define it any better. This is a perfectionist. You can still be a Christian and a perfectionist at the same time. That's not a good combo. Listen, a perfectionist, what, what makes them a perfectionist? They're constantly being critical. It's like the positive thing about them also becomes the negative. Y'all feel me on that? Where it's never enough. Where you do something great, but you always find, ah, but you know, I, I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, and I should have done that better. You know, like, it, does that make sense? And so a perfectionist is constantly being critical because he constantly wants to get better. And it works the same way. And so then it doesn't matter what somebody else does. Then they might support them, hype them up, but they always got something else to say. Constantly being critical. I think we know maybe some bosses that are like this. We know some parents that are like this. And it doesn't matter what we do for them, right? It's never enough. They always got something to do. Always got this and all that. They're constant critics. Here's another one. Pharisees, these kind of Christians got big heads and little hearts. All right? These kind of Christians got a big head and a little heart. They know a lot. They know a lot up here, but just something's not right in here, all right? 
They, they know a lot of information, but deep into their core, just something is off. Do you guys know that the James, I believe it's James, who says that there's a level of Christian who constantly, or a level of a person who is constantly learning and learning and learning, yet in the end knows nothing. Because they put all of their effort into knowledge. And again, that's prideful. I know more than you. This was the Pharisees. Nobody knew things better than them. And so they, they love to be able to quote scripture left and right, left and right. But do they apply it? That's these guys. Okay? They love to quote it, but they don't apply it. Another one is this. Um, they got, ooh, they, it's rules for thee, not for me. That's that kind of a Christian. Rules for thee, not for me. All right, meaning, look, I'm going to tell you what you need to do, you need to do, you need to do, but they don't hold themselves to the same standard. What do we call that? That's a hypocrite, don't we? Yeah, we call that hypocritical, right? We do that when we're constantly putting the demand on others, yet we don't do that and hold ourselves to the same standard. Why? Because just, I'm just better, right? Moving on. You got another one here. These guys are people pleasers, but in a weird way. These guys are people pleasers, and, and it sounds like a good thing, right? It's like, I just want to help people, right? I just want to make a difference. That's cool. But these guys are so selfish and prideful that they please people in order to use them for their own personal gain. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But I'm only doing it for you. How selfish is that? Even where you can take an act of service, I can love you and help you, but I'm really using you for me. That's messed up. That's what the Pharisees did. They used people for their own personal gain. They used people, and they wanted to please people because they wanted, here's what they wanted. They wanted the praise from people. I want to serve you, help you do this, do that, just so I can, oh, yeah, give me some more. You know, give me, give me, that's, and literally, it's, it's nothing different between you know, running a line of coke and you know, running a line of people praising. I haven't done that. I've seen it in movies. All right, but anyways, um, that's the same thing. When people be giving them praise, 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 they're like, oh, that felt good. Same thing. That's what these people are. Moving on. People pleasers. Here's another one. These guys like to conform to the culture. These kind of Christians conform their Christianity to the culture. What were these Jews telling them? What, what were they wanting? And the, the big demand was we got to make non-Jews act like Jews. Follow Jesus and be a Jew, right? And so there is something Paul mentions it in Galatians where he says these kind of Christians, they like to conform not to Christ, which is what we're called to do. You and I are called to conform to the image of Christ. And what's so beautiful about this is that when we conform to Christ, we don't lose ourselves. It's like our God expresses himself through us. And so there is a unique character in the way that you may follow Christ. You may follow Christ and I. There's this unique you know, ness to it because there's an individuality to it. But these guys put too much emphasis. They don't put the emphasis on how can our culture conform to Christ. No, there's like, how can my Christian faith conform to the culture? And it's different. We have that today. And there's debates on that today. That, oh, I don't got, I want a Jesus that, that looks like me or acts like me or talks like me or thinks. I want Jesus to affirm me when we're supposed to affirm Christ. And we want to take our Christian faith and conform it to the culture. That's still having, I still want a little bit of my old way of living and thinking and acting and doing, but I still want the Jesus thing too. And so here's when we, be, we begin to like Christianize maybe too many things and it kind of gets a little nuts there. Um, but here's the motivation. Why? Why do people like to conform their Christianity to a culture? Because when you're going to conform to Christ, your culture is going to go with it. But when you bring it to the culture, 
Paul said it. I'm like, hey, watch out with those people that like to conform their Christian culture to the cult, their Christianity to the culture because they just want to act like the world because they don't want, they want to avoid the stigma and they don't want to be persecuted. I.e., they don't want to offend anybody. They, they just want to blend in, have their Jesus, have their salvation and kind of coast. That's selfish. There's people who's like, oh, I don't want to be that kind or I don't want to say certain things in a loving way, but still I don't, I want to look a certain way that's acceptable. I want the, listen to this, I want the culture to accept me. I want people to accept me. And what are Christians, what are we called to do? Tell people to accept Christ. You see the difference? It's subtle. But there's a difference there. Another one is this. These people, and Jesus said to himself, this kind of person keeps somebody else from the kingdom because they're not enjoying the Christian walk. They're not enjoying the fruits of what God has given them. And because they're demanding this of others and teaching of others, they are now putting roadblocks in other people's lives to enjoy the thing that they can't even enjoy. And so this is what it matters so much, our lifestyle. And here's the last one. Let's be real. I, I, I have perfectionist tendencies pretty sure a lot of us do if we're honest perfectionist is always miserable a perfectionist is miserable because they know they're, they're it's a facade it's a fa whatever portrait you know thing you're putting out there it's not real and you know that you feel like a fake but you can't be honest you're miserable and so perfectionists tend to make everybody else miserable too right all right, that's, uh, that, 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 is the, that is the movie Encanto in 10 seconds, okay? You got a miserable person, everybody else in the house is miserable, all right, because of that. And so it is so important that we understand and look, this is not what God has called us to live by. This is not what he's called us to look like. It, this isn't it at all. And so I've said this before, I'll say it a million times. Listen, guys, this is what's called a work-based religion, where your faith is on you to do. All right, and I'm, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Work-based religion does not work. A work-based faith does not work. It doesn't work that way. That's not what Jesus wanted. And so let me show you another verse. We're going to hop around for a minute. In Acts, uh, at the end of Acts, Peter's response to these, circum, you know, these circumcision party guys is like saying, wait a minute, Peter, what are you, you're telling me you ate with uncircumcised people? What are you talking about? Peter gives the recap, tells them everything, and then in verse, uh, let's go to verse 17 and 18. At the end of the conclusion, he says this in verse chapter 11, verse 17 in Acts. He says, if then God gave the same gift that we also have, that he has given to us, Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus, how can I possibly hinder God? Like, what, how are we going to stop him? For when they heard this, they became silent, and they glorify God, saying, well, so then. Okay, well, I guess the God has given repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. And you would have thought that would have ended it. So it was a quick debate. And like saying, guys, look what they did. And they didn't do it. We didn't do anything to be saved. God saved us. These Gentiles didn't do anything to be saved, but God saved them. And so what's the issue here? Well, I guess so. Well, it, it, it still was an issue. Chapter, uh, chapter 15, look at this one verse here. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 really fast. This is, again, the debate kept on going. These guys, I guess it was settled, but not really. And they kept, more and more Jews kept on getting saved. Now you got more non-Jews that are saved than Jews. And so now they feel, you know, what was once the majority of the culture now is a minority. And so they were like, no, nah, we can't let our Jewish culture die. We can't let their Jewish culture die. So they were telling these non-Jews they need to be more. They need to be more. And then later this was a, a, a decision that they all had to get together. And they debated. And in verse 17, uh, James, this was Jesus' uh, brother. I'm sorry, verse 10 and 11, he says this. He says, now then, 
Why are you, the circumcision party guys, the, Pharise the Christian Pharisees, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither you nor our ancestors we've been able to bear? Look, think of that word yoke. I'm going to come back to that later. Why are you guys trying to put a yoke on the disciples' necks that our people, the Jewish people, we could not bear? On the contrary, we believe that we were saved through what, guys? The grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. And so there it is again. So he's talking again about this. Why are we trying to add to what God has done? It's not going to work that way. It isn't, we're distracting from it. And then uh, I'll give you one other one here in, in Galatians. As we're going to look at all this, and so now I'm going to come back to that in a second. And so when, when he's looking to this, he's like, no, no, you're adding too much. That's not what it is. It's simpler than that. It's simpler than that. Let's not overcomplicate things. It's simpler than that. And so what does it look like? Well, so now we kind of saw what the Christian life shouldn't look like. It shouldn't look like selfishness. It shouldn't look like pride. But what should it look like? Let's look at, uh, can we put Galatians 5.1? Let's put 5-1 really quick. Look at this one. In, as he's making his argument, he's kind of honing it down. And, and Paul, Paul tells this church in Galatians 5 when he says, um, Therefore, well, that's Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, no, for freedom. I don't know, maybe some of you guys have maybe heard this one before. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and don't submit again to the what? There's that word again. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. So if you've been in Christ, then what did Christ do for you? He set you, what? Free. Free from what should be the question you should ask. Free from what? See, who is he talking to? If you want to understand the text, you got to understand the context. The whole argument that he's making in this Galatian church, which this Galatian church was a pharisaical circumcision party. This was the majority. That church took over. This is who's running it. And they're like, guys... God set us free from that yoke that we could not bear. And what was the yoke of being perfect? The yoke of perfectionism. God set us free from that. We couldn't hold that. God gave us this law that we, none of us could fulfill. No one in our history was able to do it. And, and we all knew that. And so why are we going to demand other people to do what we know we can't even do? That's weird. It's like we're drowning. And so listen, I don't want to drown alone. I'm, I'm taking you with me. And so, no, that does not make sense. God has set us free from perfectionism. He set us free from failure, the fear, the fear of failure. And really, you can say that too. He's, he set us free from, from that as well, from, from just being exhausted by unnecessary things. Another one, he says this, and so it, it looks like freedom. What does the Christian life look like? It's called freedom. That there is no standard, no checkbox that you have to necessarily do and achieve. And, and you don't got a quota that you need to be able to show to Christ, you know, every quarter on what you're doing. There is a freedom from this work-based performing. We don't have to perform towards God. We don't have to prove anything to him. Because the cross is all the proof that we need. There's too many of us that we I used to do this. When I got saved, I truly got saved. I was so grateful that God saved. I literally, I talking about a wretch like me, like that word, I, I, that hit. That hit. And I felt so unworthy, rightfully so, of that love, because I am not worthy of it. I was so grateful for his grace towards me that I immediately, talking about how quickly you turned, 
I, I got saved by doing nothing but trusting on what he did for me. And then quickly, I went into my, all right, now I got to turn it on. And now I got I to gotta feel like I got to live in such a radical way to show that God, I wasn't a waste. That I, I was worth that sacrifice. And that was exhausting. I, I feel that. That was exhausting. Because I wouldn't be enough or do enough and this and that. And, and I, I literally, God set me free. And then I put the shackles right back on. That's what I did. He set me free and I put them right back on me. Not even on me. I just held them. Okay, I mean, they're broken, so I picked up all of these things that weighed me down that are no longer on me. They haven't trapped me, but now I picked them up, and I'm like, okay, I got this. Thank you, Jesus. He set us free from that. And, what, and so free to what? Free from this, but then, listen, if God has set you free from something, he's also saved you for something. What has he saved you for? The rest of that verse, look at Galatians. Can, um, put Galatians 5, 13, and 14. He says, for you were called to be what? Free. You were called to be free. Free from what? Free from this per performance-based religion. Per free from all of this. God has freed you from this, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another in love. You know what the flesh is? Flesh is selfishness. The flesh is what they were doing. God set you free from everything. And now here you are trying to live the Christian life for yourself. I'm going to use people to make me feel better. I'm going to serve so that people can recognize me. I'm like, no, 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 no. God has given you freedom, not for your selfish, prideful purposes, but for whose? Someone else. You see that? God has set you free, not for you to enjoy it, but so that you can be a blessing to someone else. And then he says this thing, for the whole law. Remember, what are these guys talking about? The law, follow the law, follow the law, follow the letter to the law, letter to the law. And he's saying, guys, the whole law is summed up in one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we've been talking about that in our small groups lately. It's just really breaking that down. What does that mean to love your neighbor? It literally means loving the person next to you. Don't overcomplicate it. It's literally, who's the person next to you at your job? Who's the person next to you in your home? Who's the person next to you in your home? Who's the person next to you anywhere? It's literally that. It is not complicated, but we complicate it. Just love the person nearest to you. That's it. So now in, we're all in here. You are all officially neighbors for the next 30 minutes or so. And so, you know, this counts. And so don't overcomplicate it. But I love the fact that he points back to the law because these Galatian Christians, they were like, oh, we're our church. We follow the letter to the law better than everyone else. And they're like saying, oh, how funny. Because literally, if you can't do this one thing, you're not doing anything. You're claiming to like be batting a thousand. But if you miss this one thing, you haven't done anything because the law is summed up in one thing. I mean, for a legalist and for a perfectionist, you would think, oh, this is easy. But in all of their activity, they're doing the one thing that mattered most. And they were lost in busy work. And so guys, that's not what it looks like. See, um, this is what these kind of Christians, and we do this as well. I've done this as well. And I can find myself, I catch myself in this moment. Because we tend to think that the works, that what we do is the, is the, is the foundation, is the root. Like our works is the root of our plant. The, our works are that. It's what feeds us. It's what gives us. It's what we base our salvation on. But a true Christian understands, guys, that works are not the fruit. I'm sorry, works are not the root. Works are the fruit. The root is Christ, what he has done, not what we do. When we are anchored in what he has done, he does something through us. You see that? And that's what the fruit is. 
So when a tree that's anchored in and produces apples, that tree is on the branch ain't gonna you know, gnaw on the apples. I'm hungry, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna gnaw on the apples that I got on my branch. The tree produces apples, but not for itself, right? It produces apples for who? Somebody else to get. Because the tree got everything that it needs in the roots. And so that's what we do, guys. We don't do and serve and act in a way just so we can just literally gnaw on each other which he mentions that in Galatians. You guys fight and just gnawing on each other, consuming each other. But no, we are consumed by Christ. And the way we do that, we live in this flip side way that it's better. And so this other part is this, and I'll, I'll say this last part, last, last verse. Look at uh, Galatians 6, 13 and 15. So he's kind of making his point. He's trying to say this legalistic stuff don't work. God has set you free from that. And he's free freed you just to love. And then he ends in Galatians 6. Look at this in verse 13 and 15. He's wrapping it home. He's going to end this letter. And what does he say? For even the circumcised don't keep the law. So look at that. He's saying these guys that are telling you to, hey, follow the law like we are. He's like, yo, yo, they're not doing it. Okay. They're not doing it. They're not living like that. They're not living holy rollers like that. They're lying. God, I mean, Paul's exposing all of them. He says, even the circumcised don't keep the law. And yet, they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. Who's the boasting here? Who's the boasting? Guys, look how messed up this is. They're saying, hey, I want you to get, I want you to not just get saved and circumcised. So I'm like, hey, you see how many people I got circumcised today? Bro, look at that. Bro, I'm out here. I'm killing it. Again, they're using somebody else. Taking Jesus at that, taking the cross and using it for, and says, oh, I'm boasting about what I'm doing. I'm boasting how many people I've served, this and what this and programs and that. I'm boasting. I'm bo and he says what? They boast about this, but for me, I will never boast about anything except what? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. All right. For both the circumcised and the uncircumcision, look, that means nothing. Like, you're debating on silly stuff. It means nothing. What matters instead is this new creation. And so look what he's saying here. He's like saying, you guys are boasting about what you're doing for Jesus. You know what I'm going to boast about? What Jesus did for me. That's it. That's it. You're going to boast about how you're living for the Lord and how this and that, and you feel so good and proud and excited, and look how worthy I am. I'm like, listen, I'm, just, I'm still grateful for what he did for me and what he does for me. So that's the focus. That's the, the standard here. Notice again what a, what a Christian life should look like. It is one of freedom and love. And why? Because of what he did. Guys, though every, every single religion in the world, you can sum it up. Sum it up with one simple sentence. It's do. Every religion in the world tells you do. Do, 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 do. But the Christian religion is the only one that stands alone. Every other religion says do. The Christian, what Jesus says is no, done. Done. Meaning, you know what done means? Done. Okay, I mean, it's not, don't, don't, don't overcomplicate it. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, it's done. It's over. Like he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need the extra. He doesn't need, no, it's done. There is nothing that we can contribute. All he is calling us to do is just participate and engage and receive it. That's it. There is nothing else for you to do. And the perfectionist is always looking at what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do to save the world? What can I do to bring our, you know, save America? What can I do to this? And those are all great things. 
but it's always putting the focus on what can I do, what can I do, what can I do, and you're not happy with what he's done for you. It's not enough what he's done for you. You need to bring a little more. And this is the sad part. Some of us, I guarantee you, we're in this room or watching online. If not, because we all have this tendency, the most sincere believer can quickly move into this because of the selfishness and sin that remains. See, when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, guys, pay attention. Sin no longer reigns over you. Darkness does not reign in your life. Sin does not reign in your life if you're a believer in Christ, but it remains. It doesn't, it doesn't reign, but it remains. And there is something that God has done, and he does that in order to conform us even more to him. And so we all have this selfish tendency that we're going to want to default back to, so we got to be careful. But here's the thing, guys, and we all know this to be true. A perfectionist is never at peace. A perfectionist is never at peace. Why? Why is a perfectionist never at peace? Because what they do is still not good enough. Feels good for a moment, but then they got to go to the next thing, and then the next thing. Or when they fail, it's not a, a perfectionist is never at peace. Because they realize deep down, look at the irony here, and look what sin does that makes us, I mean, it doesn't make sense. We all know no one can be perfect, but I want to try. That's what a perfectionist says. I know no one can be perfect, but I want to look like, and I want to try. I want to see how close I can get. It doesn't work like that. A perfectionist is never at peace. There's always something to do. They never can find the rest to know what God has done for me is enough. That's it. What he has done for me is enough. Actually, studies are showing more and more that a lot of mental, physical, and emotional health issues, some mental health issues, emotional health, even physical, are rooted with this connection of perfectionists. Because they, they have unrealistic expectations of life, unrealistic expectations of their marriage, unrealistic expectations. Listen, there's a lot of 20-somethings, studies show a lot of 20-somethings who are, have full of anxiety because they haven't achieved enough at their young age. It was like, I haven't done enough yet. I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. Then in the 30s, I haven't done enough. Look at someone else. Look at who's done more. Look at who's done this. I haven't done enough. And so I'm behind. Look, I'm looking at everybody else. I'm looking at this. And, and, and there's, they're never at peace. There's always something to do. And they're showing that people are living in depressed states. It's affecting their physical biology because they are trying to be perfect. And I heard recently a, a man named Virgil Walker said this. If you want to attain perfection, you have to abandon it. Abandon perfection in order to attain perfection in Christ. See, here's the thing. Perfection is not something we do. We are perfected by Christ through the Holy Spirit as we abide in his word and apply it. That's not our job to perfect ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit's job. You know, get your hand off the wheel. You see what I'm saying? And that's why there's so much anxiety because you want to do more and you can't because it's not your job. That's not your design. You abandon it in order to find it. And then here's this one thing. I don't know if you caught. Can we put um, verse 16? Uh, Josue, I think it's the last, uh, almost the last verse. Look at verse 16. Ephesians 6, he says this. I'm sorry, Galatians 6, 16, he says, may peace. Because some, some, some people here, I'm receiving this from myself. And I know a lot of us, we need to hone on this as well. May what? May peace. May peace come to all of those who follow, what? This standard. 
and mercy even to the Israel of God. What standard? What standard? The one that he just displayed this whole time. Putting, abandoning, you're just so consumed with what you do that you're, you don't enjoy what God has done. That standard, that focus. And when you focus on what God has done, what do you receive? Peace. Peace to know that you don't have to do anything more for God to love you because he loves you the way you are. Peace to know that even if you fail, that's not gonna, that's not gonna make God love you any less. He loves you now as if you are perfect and he knows that you're not. What a God, right? What a God that loves you if you're in Christ, he loves you as if you're perfect and he knows you're not, but he loves you because he knows it's, he's covering up. He's making the difference there. This is the standard that Paul constantly talks about. I'm just going to rapid fire, so Josue, hang in with me. Ephesians 2, look at this. In another church, he's helping them to understand the same thing. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for you are saved by what? By grace, through faith. And this is not of yourself so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship. So you see what I'm saying? So we are saved by grace. You can't attribute and can, nothing. It is all because of what he has done for us. And then he says later in 11:15, he says this. He says, so then remember. Oh, this is the, this is the word, guys, right here. Remember this. Because you're going to want to forget it, and the enemy's going to want to make you forget it. But you need to remember what? The remember that at one time you were who? Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those who are so see look the, the debate in another church as well same thing he says remember that at one time this is who you were which all it's done in the flesh like this is man-made stuff at that time you were without Christ excluded from the citizenship of Israel foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope without God in the world but now what does he say in verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far have been brought near by the what? Blood of Christ, not yours. By the blood of Christ. For he is our what? Peace. There it is again. For he is our peace who made us both groups in one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now what dividing wall of hostility is he talking about? The wall of perfection that stood between unholy people and a holy God. What Jesus did on the cross was he literally paid for our penalty. And so when that veil was torn open, the wall that stood between an unholy, God, unholy people and a holy God is forever gone. Like we don't have to be perfect because we can't be. That dividing wall is over. But yet here we are and we're still struggling. There's still people today. Instead of rejoicing over the rubble, they want to rebuild it with the rubble. There is nothing here. God has torn it down for us to wor not worry about it. Because living this perfectionist life, even as a believer, it's like running on a treadmill. Some of y'all have ever, I'm sure we've done something like that before. Being a perfectionist, especially following Jesus, it's like running on a treadmill. You can run for miles, but in the end, you're still in the same place. You can run for miles and have a good time, but you're still in the same place from when you started. A perfectionist is the same way. All of your effort and all that you do, in the end, you haven't gone anywhere. That's not how Christ called us to follow him. Listen, you and I, we will never be at peace unless, okay? We will never be at peace if we continue to pursue it and we'll pursue perfection. We will never be at peace if we try to pursue perfection. It doesn't work that way. All right? 
Jesus instead. We're supposed to pursue him. Now, remember I said earlier, how many times did uh, Paul mention and, and these guys mention the yoke, right? These, what were these Christian, culturally appropriate Christians doing? They were trying to say, yo, let's put the yoke of this Jewish faith on other people. They were putting it on them, right? And it says, don't put a yoke on them that they didn't ask for. Don't put a yoke on them that you can't even do. And so these yokes, guys, we've all seen images of cows and cattle where they have this bar right over their necks and they're tied to something heavier and that's what they pull, right? That's what they pull. And so he says, no, we don't put those yokes on. But Jesus, he talked about yokes one time. Jesus said, my yoke is different. And he said, take my yoke. Guys, what does take imply? It's a decision. Is Jesus going to put his yoke on you? He says, take it. Choose. And he says, oh, by the way, my yoke is not like that yoke. It's not, it's different. My yoke is light. My yoke is easy. There's still things that we follow, but here, but it's not on your shoulders. Because when they would talk about yokes, you, when a younger, a younger calf wanted to learn how to pull, they attached it to a bigger, stronger one. So they were both yoked together. And the younger one is moving right alongside the big one, but the young one is really doing nothing. The young one is just learning. There's no pressure on his shoulders. He's just walking with the big bull. The big bull is the one who's pulling all the way. Christ says, why don't you take my weight? Meaning, come under me. I got this. I got it. You're just going to learn from me. We're going to walk together. Follow me. You're free from that burden. You don't got to carry it, but walk with me. I'm carrying it for you. I see the peace that we find is when we abandon trying to pull it on our own. This is when some of us, the prideful Christian, loves to say, no, 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 I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this. No, listen. The peaceful Christian knows God's got me. God's got me. He has me. I, I, maybe I don't figure this out. I, I need some issues and I got, I got some problems. I need answers. But it's not on me to figure this out on my own and to do it in my own strength. God's got me. God's got me if you have Christ. Guys, that's the peace that we have and we all have this tendency. Even right now, I bet you you're, some of you are fighting it and maybe you're going to go home and you're going to be driving and you're already going to be confronted with all the list of things that you got to do. But I want you to remember, it's okay to say, okay, I got this meeting, I can do it. Don't lose sight. Remember what? God's got me. God's got me. He can carry us through. We all have these tendencies, guys. Listen, we all, I have the tendency sometimes as well with my boys and I have to apologize to them. When I feel like sometimes I, I tell them, okay, rules for thee, not for me, and I, I catch myself sometimes and I gotta apologize. Sometimes, I ain't gonna lie, talking about a, even a sermon on perfection, Oh man, I fought this one to be perfect. I wanted it to be like, no, okay. No, because it's, I know that the truth is not going to be communicated and you're not going to get it because of my creativity, curiosity, this and that. It's going to be him. And so I fought it. And I know we all have this temptation to want to earn it or prove it. But listen, you have nothing to prove to God. He's proven everything to you. The cross is one massive, I love you love you now and when we follow him that's when we begin to grow and that's when we see it. God does the very thing that you are so exhausted trying to do God will do it it's easier it doesn't mean that life will be easy 
you're not alone. You don't have to be perfect. He was perfect for you. And so guys, let me, let me just challenge you with this, this last thing. Let us not be the kind of Christians who are like kids on Christmas, right? A, kid, a little kid on Christmas, what does he do? Parents, we've all been here and we've all done this as well. A kid on Christmas loves to take the toy that the parent has purchased and toss it to the side so they can play with the box, right? That's what a, that's what a selfish perfectionist Christian does. They take the gift that the Father has given them, they toss it in order to play with the box. Guys, what we need to do is toss the box of perfectionism every single day and actually enjoy the gift that our Father has given us, which is eternal life in Christ. The gift is Him. That's what we do. When you and I try to be perfect, we take the gift that is God and say, Lord, you are not enough. I think I can do better than you. You know what that's called? It's called sin, guys. That is called the sin. That's, that is saying, God, you are not enough. I need to. But can we lay that down? Let's toss that box and let's enjoy the gift that is God, which he paid for with his very own life so that we could have life. Listen, Jesus has settled the debate forever on how to find peace. And you will not be at peace if you choose perfection. And guys, let me just help you with that one thing there as we wrap things up. I want you to consider what has God been speaking to you? How did he speak to you right now? What is something that you need to do? And what is something that you need to be cautious of? Because see, there's a small truth that the enemy will take and twist. And the truth is this sense of perfection. See, every believer, according to the gospel and according to God, knows that he will perfect us according to the work and power of the Holy Spirit into the truth of God. And that perfection we will see in its fullness in eternity when Christ returns. But the enemy takes that truth that we will be perfect and he makes us focus on how can we be perfect now. So guys, listen, again, that is not your job. Your job is to pursue Christ. And the Holy Spirit's job is to perfect you into the likeness of Christ. And that is an ongoing thing. Listen, peace is possible and it is not achieved, it is received. Anchor your heart and revolve your mind, your faith, your, your life on that truth right there. And watch, again, God do the work in you and through you for his glory and the good of others.